right, Derek, you ready to record? We need to get going. We're on a timer, bro. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hold on one sec. All right. You okay. Ready? Yeah. What are you doing? I'm, Come on I'm now. Just, Stop wasting my time, Derek. You, no, what? What are you talking about? I'm running this monkey farm now, Frankenstein, and I want to know what the fuck are you doing with my time? Welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, your movie monster boy, Aaron, and my cowardly co-host, Derek, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. Once again, we are smack, ooh, heat wave, it's hot out there, in the middle of dead boy summer. Hell yeah. Nice. And we are going to be discussing Day of the Dead from 1985, once again directed by the great George Romero. And to join us in this discussion, we have back once again, James Hales. What's up, bro? It is up and it is hot as shit. (laughs) Dead boy summer, (laughs) y'all. Hell yeah. Well, uh, we are going to be discussing the movie shortly. Before we do that, though, as always, let's talk some recent horror that we've gotten into. So as usual, just other horror movies, TV shows, books, comics, music, video games, etc. that are horror in nature that we want to throw out for y'all, the listeners, and see if anything maybe tickles your fancy and uh then you can check it out and enjoy it just like we did so cool as always we start with our guest james have you gotten into anything horror related lately um mostly i bought a trade paperback recently and i came across it randomly it's called red room the anti-social network Mm -hmm. it's one of those dark web urban legend red room type deals where there's several interconnecting stories about a red room okay not to toss out a butt ton of spoilers but there's law enforcement personnel and people who are trying to find out where this red room's coming from who's operating it how they're choosing their victims things to that effect and it's been going pretty hard i'm not done reading it yet just googling it the cover is ridiculous because it's a guy screaming with his guts out and then just opening to scrippers it's a cyberpunk outlaw splatterpunk mass masterpiece from New York Times bestseller creator of Hip Hop Family Tree and X-Men Grand Design. Oh, so this is the guy who did X-Men Grand Design comics. I recognize I recognize this yeah, guy. Yeah, and the cover doesn't even pardon the pun cover everything that is as fucking <laughs> vicious in this shit. It's a ride, if you will. But yeah, as far as just reading or comics, been doing that. Basically been riding Shudder a lot, honestly. Hell yeah. Gotten to, and actually comic related to a degree from my point of view. 
Taiwanese film called The Sadness. I've been hearing about it. I've been hearing yep. a lot about this movie too. Yeah. It is batshit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> however, <laughs> um, in watching it, I was looking at it and I'm not, I don't know if the writers or producers or director got the idea from it, but the comic book crossed. Yeah. When I heard about like the premise of The Sadness, it is very similar to yeah, Frost. Yeah. Just as fucked up. Yeah. Minus the sexual torture of dolphins. It is just as bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard that uh, the sadness is pretty rough going, but if you want to see something that is just absolutely off the fucking rails insane, oh, yeah. that is your ticket. I do love how, like, even with the sadness crossed, still goes over that line even more because that's fucking <laughs> yeah. Garth Ennis, of course. He always has that weird sexual perversion part of it of all his work, too. Yes, and it was it was it was pretty good. Other than that, just been uh, actually educating some of the younger folks about the grandness of good horror, if you will. Actually, if you don't mind, give a shout out to Antonio San Juan and now Alexis who. I work with and have been giving them good areas to look at in terms of film and things that are beyond some of the dumb shit that comes out today. Hell yeah. Well, yeah, that's always the responsibility of the elders is we got to guide those youngins in the <laughs> right direction. Yeah, of course. And me, who doesn't really know much about the genre. Well, you're different. You're, you're accepted. <laughs> have you gotten into like any classic kind of films lately from recommending to your coworkers? Like, have you watched anything recently? It was actually a little bit while back. One of my coworkers, shout out to Samantha as well, referred her to Sleepaway Camp. <laughs> she had never seen it. Yeah, she had the same reaction that most of us had after watching Sleepaway <laughs> Camp. And also just recommending a lot of Argento because I have yeah. my hang up with Italian horror, as we all know. <laughs> and then just going that route and getting them steered in the right direction. With positive results. Hell yeah. Since we did it last episode, we did zombie, zombie two, yes. whatever you want to call it. Is that is that a personal favorite of yours? I know you're like our Italian horror fan. You know what? Because I like Fulci and I appreciate all of his contributions. I oddly have the opening theme to zombie or zombie two on my horror movie designed playlist that includes close to 200 songs but that's one of the ones and actually the greatest shark fight scene ever made since Jaws hell yeah you have to refer to that <laughs> and you know comment on it <laughs> yeah yeah if, uh, listeners if you want to know more about what we're talking about where literally a zombie fights a shark underwater go listen back and listen episode, to our, yeah. our last episode <laughs> yeah Hell yeah. It's a grand old time of fun with Zombie. And of course, you got the Fulci eye trauma, which he has in every damn film. But at the same time, it's just good, slow zombies versus our amped up super zombies that we've been seeing for about the past 20 something years. Yeah, I've got a little bit of fast zombie talk coming at the end of this episode. So we'll get into that in a little bit. But yeah, that's been my hang up. Awesome. Oh, actually, one more thing. As I've said in the past, I I'm a friggin' creepypasta fanatic. There's an app called Chilling. It's all creepypastas. Okay. And it's awesome. There's tones that you can make when you're listening to it, whether it be raindrops or creepy music or whatever the case may be for every single story. There are subgenres that they have to it, so it's pretty hot. I got it on my phone. Huh. I listen to it when I'm working or whatever else. I am downloading this app now. 
Hell yeah. Well, Derek, what have you got? I have two comics and a movie. Let's start off with the comics. Both of them are going to be Image. The first one is called Bloodstained Teeth. Okay. It is a very stylish, modern vampire comic. It's about four or five issues in. It's from the writer Christian Ward, who has done work on something called Machine Gun Wizards, which (laughs) I've never read. What really shines in this is the artwork, and the artist is Patrick Reynolds, who did Hellboy and the uh, BRPD, as well as Joe Golem. Then the coloring which is like the best fucking part of this whole comic in my opinion is done by heather moore um reason why is every single page every single panel is done in like this neon color of the rainbow style that's just i'm not doing it justice by trying to describe it just like look up bloodstained teeth comic and you'll see what i mean like everything is popping you feel like there's a whole world but it's almost in a painting very modern pop art feel to it in this world there are two types of vampires those who are like naturally born vampires and then the vampires who are created vampires who are naturally born are elitist and they looked at like they don't like the vampires that sure. are created that's kind of always what that dynamic is in this kind of story yeah it follows a guy named Atticus Sloan who is basically a vampire for hire like he goes around and people who have enough money and can like discover him he'll turn them into vampires and basically give them immortality and like increase strength and all and it's, you know it's people from like a famous boxer to influencers like social media influencers just whoever can get to this guy well the higher up council of vampires or like the people in charge find out what he's doing beat the shit out of him say he has so many days to kill everyone he has turned into a vampire that paid him or they're gonna kill him and so it's him starting to like hunt down all these people that he had turned into vampires he kind of discovered that natural born vampires technically are stronger because they have limitless healing factor and they don't get tired whereas made vampires vampires have a ceiling that they eventually hit stuff like that there's also a side story brewing of this woman who is tracking down vampires and kind of knows they exist and something tragic happened in her past and she's kind of hunting them down so that's also kind of happening in the shadows of the story but it's pretty good the writing does the job it's solid it's not like anything that's going to knock you off your socks but really the artwork is like where this comic shines and it's a neat idea otherwise it's nothing like super original but it's original enough and and done well enough that it kind of stands on its own as a pretty cool uh, neon drenched vampire modern story. So the second one is called A Town Called Terror, which is also about three or four issues in a horror series that's done by Steve Niles. And I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right. Seisman Kondronsky. Steve Niles is 30 Days of Night, correct? Yeah. Yes, I think I think he's 30 Days of Night. Yeah, this comic's a little bit more slow moving because again this is about four issues in now i read the first issues and it feels like there's a bigger world here that just needs to open up a little bit more but basically it kind of starts off with this guy and his wife suddenly they get attacked his wife gets drugged he's disappeared and she's like what the fuck happened she hires a detective and her and this detective are looking for him on the flip side of things he goes back to this town where literally like all the monsters live think like the hammer horse style monsters vampires frankensteins werewolves but like you know in that old school 30s to 50s 60s like monster mash feel the opening pages of the very first issue like is a funeral for his dad and the guy like puts his dad back together and his dad's alive again he's like start with the head next time is like the only thing that he says he's basically trying to get his son back into the town for family reasons and the son didn't want to come back he wanted to escape this life you know it's shit 
get like the son going to the local bar and a Frankenstein monster being like, you know, you shouldn't have come back to this town. And he like beats the shit out of the Frankenstein monster. Like that kind of stuff is happening in this comic. So yeah, it's kind of a, uh, like a family dynamic having to go back to your old town, but your old town is where basically every monster movie lives and, uh, trying to like escape your past, but your past always coming back and getting you and dealing with family drama and all that kind of stuff. It's interesting enough that I definitely think it's worth checking out and I'm curious to see where they go with the series. And I honestly want them to open up the history of the town and stuff a little bit more as to like why this town exists and all of that. So those are the two comics I wanted to recommend. Last thing I'll mention, still going through my weird overlooked slashers thing. This is a weird one because there's a lot of problematic elements to this movie and not just from what's actually shown on screen. Um, I watched a slasher from 1981 directed by Tony Malum. Yes. Called The Burning. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This summer, if you're planning to go camping, don't. If you're looking forward to midnight swims, don't. Get some matches. Build us a hot fire. Don't be wrong. And if you're thinking about being with someone where no one can see you, don't. Because this summer, a legend of terror isn't just a campfire story anymore. They say he smashed his way through the bunk room door, just a mass of flames. Cried out. I will return. I will have my revenge. on whatever he can catch. Right now, he's out there, watching, waiting. Who's there? What happened one summer five years ago is about to happen again, and again, and again. The Burning. Which, uh, first off, he's not even the, like one of the stars of this movie, but Jason Alexander yes, of Seinfeld fame stud, right? is in this movie. <laughs> yeah, and he's a stud. He's a fucking stinker in this movie. Like, just picture Jason Alexander just a bit younger and with more hair, but he sounds exactly the same as he does on Seinfeld, and you kind of can picture it. I believe this is also the debut of Holly Hunter. Yeah. She is just one of the random campers. She doesn't have any dialogue, I don't think. Yeah. So uh, the reason why, like, let's start up front with the controversy of this movie uh the weinsteins are heavily and were heavily involved (laughs) with the production of this to the point where harvey weinstein helped write the story it was produced by harvey weinstein and bob weinstein helped write the screenplay this is kind of one of the first movies to really sort of kind of put them on the map at least from a movie making standpoint also too it kind of featured heavily in the Me Too movement and kind of the fall of Harvey Weinstein that we recently went through because one of the production assistants came forward and said that he was super predator during the production of this movie and was fucking awful and harassed her and shit on set. So yeah, just keep that in mind. It was made by the Weinsteins and it also is a little kind of weird when you're watching it knowing that their hands are all over this movie with a lot of the male gaze shots that are in this movie, a lot of the topless nudity in this movie and the fact that 
that I did kind of have to look it up. Like everyone who like had a sexual part or role in this or got topless, I did make sure they were all adults at the time of filming. They were like all in their 20s, a lot of these actresses and a lot of the actors. But this all happens at a summer camp. So like they're all supposed to be teenagers. So it is a little weird kind of knowing all this going into the movie. When you think shit that people made fun of 1980s slashers for, this is it. Kids having sex in the woods and getting like yeah, impaled yeah. because they're having sex in the woods. This is all the tropes. All the tropes. All like the sexual rapey tropes of guys not knowing when no means no consent and like kind of pushing girls into having sex with them. Just every kind of like weird 80s ass problematic trope of 80s comedy and 80s horror is in this movie but it's actually a good fucking like fun movie too i will say all that aside like i had a good time watching it it's fucking wild so like here's the sub this movie is one night at a summer camp a group of guys decide to play a prank on the caretaker of the summer camp because the caretaker is kind of like a mean piece of shit cropsy yeah cropsy yep which i didn't know that was an urban legend this movie is loosely based off of that urban legend but they play this prank on him it goes sideways dude gets burned alive survives fast forward a few years later at another summer camp he's back for revenge and like people start getting picked off one by one some interesting shit about this is a lot of slasher movies always have that setup of like the who done it you know oh could it be this character or like who is the actual murderer we don't know until the very end this movie was kind of refreshing because you know who's fucking doing it oh, yeah. from like the first yeah. scene yeah there's no mystery around that it's just like straight up oh yeah the guy that y'all thought you killed he's just back and he's actually here to get you now yeah from the very beginning of the movie like that's the setup because he fucking murders a prostitute immediately after getting released out of the hospital I liked that they did not show at all what he looked like until the very end and actually this movie came out before Nightmare on Elm Street I yeah. think right yes. I didn't look that up it's kind of amazing this movie isn't cited as maybe an influence on Freddy Krueger because Burnt Cropsey looked a lot like proto Freddy Krueger like when they finally reveal what he looks like with like all the fucked up skin grafts and stuff that didn't work and the kills are pretty fun it's relatively gory and it, it focuses more on nudity than a lot of slashers do and maybe a little bit less on gore but I mean at one I fucking at one point a kids fingers get cut off like <laughs> oh, by yeah, garden right. shears the slasher's two main weapons throughout the entire movie are garden shears and then like towards the very end a fucking flamethrower <laughs> yeah it, like if i only had one complaint it was that like maybe the main character or at least the main two camp counselors that you follow the boy and girl they kind of were as interesting as lamp posts whereas all the other side characters had more shit to them like anytime jason alexander was on screen he was stealing the show some of the other campers were a ton of fun the Glazer, who's like the bully, was 80s as fuck bully, and of course gets his comeuppance in a horrible way. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it, it was interesting. And ironically enough, I know I brought this up on our Phenomena episode, James, because of the very like beginning, a girl is like chased with somebody with garden shears and gets her head cut off. The main bad guy in this is like main weapon is garden shears. Once again, just like Phenomena, one of the people who created the Clock Tower video game series basically borrowed the design of the main antagonist, Scissors Man from this movie specifically too it was this movie and then that scene from Phenomena that helped him like yeah. make that character that like chases you through the game 
So yeah, it was a fun 80s slasher that I didn't really know much at all about. Again, I think besides the problematic elements, it's a lot of fun. Just know you are very much watching a movie of its time. So a lot of stuff like that hasn't aged well. And then the only complaint I had, again, was maybe the main characters were not nearly as interesting as sure, everyone else yeah. was. But that kind of goes with the territory. Yeah, it's a pretty good movie, especially given that like it came out in 81, right around Friday the 13th. So you could say it's a Friday the 13th ripoff, but like it's pretty common one and it, it happened before nightmare on elm street and the killer has a lot of similarities to freddy Krueger, specifically from design so yeah pretty good shit I mean, it sounds like both of you guys have watched this movie oh, yeah. and are, are kind of fans of it too yeah this one's a lot of fun actually quick story about that literally when i was about 18, 19, and I was going to this hardcore researching horror movies i hadn't seen period and there was a video store in New Orleans. Well, Derek, you'll know, right? New Orleans East, right off of Morrison. Yeah. I went over there, and one of the first movies I rented from there was The Burning, because I never heard of it. I was like, ah, oh, whatever. It's going to be another fucking summer camp slasher movie, because they had that subgenre. I watched it, and I was like, holy shit. It was good. And this is well before the Weinstein issues, but um, it was very good, even for me back then. It's still actually one of my favorite slashers just to stand alone yeah it's interesting because i've been going through this kick of underrated slashers i've been recommending them on and off on like the last dozen episodes or so there are some similarities even to house on sorority row like that also starts with a prank gone wrong but like house on sorority row like this one kind of took me by surprise with how much i enjoyed it because there have been some that like i wasn't as high on that i've watched but yeah it was good shit yeah and i will say it has literally one of the only movie slasher moments where i to this day i'm like holy shit and we refer to the finger cutting scene the whole canoe scene yeah yeah fucked me up yeah that's a good jump scare even now oh yeah that was a good one yeah if you're already afraid of being out on open water this doesn't help even on like a lake or a river it's like oh i can see the edges this doesn't help (laughs) no (laughs) imagine oh yeah cool i'm totally safe out here Mm, are you (laughs) i I did say that a lot of side characters actually have lines or like played by adults they still had some that were definitely teenagers who just didn't do any of the sexual scenes or any problematic scenes but some of them do get straight up fucking murdered too like in that canoe scene like just ice yeah (laughs) a couple of those kids were younger on the younger end so yeah this movie like wasn't afraid to murder children i even say that about sleepaway camp the first one there was that safety with friday the 13th that these just did not have it's arguable as to whether or not jason ever tried to kill a child but between sleepaway camp and the burning it was like ah yeah that that shit goes out the window dude even michael myers like michael myers didn't really kill anyone below the age of like 14 until the 2018 reboot sequel but like that's you know how many decades of Michael Myers movies and like he never killed kids or like anyone below the age of sixteen. I mean yeah they're teenagers quote unquote. Well like you know they're all played by twenty year olds. Yeah. So. Yeah. That was always reserved for Freddy. Freddy was the scumbag that killed kids. <laughs> yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, uh, I have got only two things to talk about real quick. Firstly. I watched a fucking crazy movie. I've been listening to Colors of the Dark, which is the podcast from Rebecca McKendry. Um, sorry, Dr. Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. They are both working on 
film projects right now. So they have been putting out some of their Patreon episodes in the meantime, which are deep cut episodes. For somebody like me, it's basically all been, okay, yeah, sure, I've seen this, I've seen this, I've seen this. Okay, there's the one movie I've not seen. So they were talking about a 90s horror marathon that happened at the New Beverly Theater in LA, which is the theater that Tarantino owns and is involved with. This is a movie from 1995 called Hideaway. Many people believe the road between life and death can only be traveled in one direction. No beat, no alpha, no beta. Better now, let's bring him back. Clear! Hatch Harrison has journeyed to the other side. We've never revived anyone after 120 minutes. Records are meant to be broken. Clear! And return. Right. Now, was I supposed to turn into the skid? <laughs> God's given you a second chance at life. I wonder what it was like to be on the other side. Is there anything wrong with you? It's not physical. So what was it? An acid flashback? Yeah, trippy. After what you've been through, I'd be surprised if you weren't having nightmares. He's never had nightmares like this before. 18-year-old Wendy Stone is still missing after 72 hours. This girl isn't missing. She's dead. Next time you have one of these gut feelings, I suggest you try Alka-Seltzer. Directed by Brett Leonard, who directed Lawnmower Man. So that will kind of give you an idea of where the fuck this is going. It was written by Andrew Kevin Walker, who again wrote fucking Seven. Fucked up, metalhead, Satan worshiper, teenager, Jeremy Sisto. Murders his mother and sister, and then in his moody, I'm gonna fucking end it all, I'm gonna take out the entire family, here's my sacrifice. And like, ritualistically commit suicide. His fucking spirit consciousness fucking early CGI warps out of his body and is going through fucking wormholes (laughs) and he like sees fucking eternity and the gates of heaven and then is thrown down into hell and this is mid 90s CGI like remember Spawn where they like (laughs) actually go to fucking hell and Spawn yeah and it's just a fucking Windows 95 screensaver of (laughs) Skelton's like screaming on fire right that's kind of exactly what this is but imagine that while you're fucking tripping balls on dmt that's kind of what this is it has that weird fucking ethereal kind of look and feel to it in the worst cgi kind of way 
We then cut to family on vacation. It is Christine Lottie and Jeff Goldblum. They are hanging out being a loving couple. And their daughter, Alicia Silverstone, is like, Mom, Dad, I just want to go to the fucking Pearl Jam concert. And they're like, oh, we don't know about that, honey. Even flow. (laughs) On the way back from their vacation, they have a car wreck. And it basically ends with Jeff Goldblum dying. And then it cuts to him being resuscitated by fucking Alfred Molina. And he is pulling the like, but he's been dead for two hours, doctor. Yes, but we can resuscitate him. We've done this before. (laughs) And Jeff Goldblum's fucking weird spirit orb with his face on it. Just like, oh, yeah. And it's just him making weird fucking Jeff Goldblum noises floating around. (laughs) He sees his dead daughter's spirit and then like gets, you know, like... (laughs) pulled out of the spirit tunnel and is back in his body. And so then it becomes a hands of Orlock kind of story where like, oh, the guy who was on the brink of death gets a limb or a heart or his tongue or his eyes replaced or his hands replaced by those of a killer. And now he's seeing visions, right? So the whole deal was a piece of Jeremy Sisto's soul gets attached to Jeff Goldblum's soul. And so Jeff Goldblum is like seeing these fucking flashes of all the like evil deeds that Jeremy Sisto is committing now that he's back alive again. It's fucking insane, but honestly, I kind of fucking dug it. <laughs> I think I like this movie more than I liked uh, Lawnmower Man, that's for sure. Well, of course. Wow, really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, Lawnmower Man is not good, right? Like, Lawnmower Man is even questionable in terms of, oh, this is a bad movie that is still fun to watch because it's dated and ridiculous and we're going to ironically watch it. This movie was legitimately kind of a nice 90s time capsule as far as the music goes and just the, like, edgelord, pseudo-goth kind of look and feel of all the characters' clothing and just the whole vibe of this thing. It was fucking wild. I really kind of enjoyed how insane it was. In the first five minutes, again, where you see fucking Jeremy Sisto's weird face plastered on a spirit orb floating through time spirit tunnels, and it just looks like all the artwork from the guy who does all the shit for Tool. (laughs) (laughs) I had to, like, stop and back it up and show Heather, and I was like, just watch this. It's the dude from Six Feet Under. Just watch this shit. And she was like, what is this? <laughs> right? So, yeah, I would definitely fucking recommend check this out. I did not necessarily find it on streaming, let's just say. But this is the kind of movie that, honestly, I could see showing up very soon. I would not be surprised if some boutique Blu-ray company ends up putting this out relatively soon. This has a pretty wild cast, and it has a pretty decent pedigree to it. I'm surprised that this movie's not just readily available for you to buy on Blu-ray like right now. So I could see this being available very soon. But yeah, this is a hideaway from 1995. I vaguely remember vaguely vaguely as like a young kid seeing something about Jeff Goldblum dying but coming back and having visions and like this must have been the movie yeah, I was I don't fucking remember this movie at all I, I've never heard of this fucking movie I might have seen a commercial or something for it but like I swear this is kind of unlocking a memory that I didn't know I had from like childhood 
good. But this sounds vaguely and oddly familiar to me. Yeah. So I'm going to be that guy, and I'm going to say that out of all of the shit that I have in digits for film on a couple of hard drives, I actually have this on one of my hard drives. (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah. The last time I saw it, I think I was in Iraq, and I was bored, and I was like, fuck it, I'm going to watch it. And Children of the Corn 2 CGI. That's the best way I can describe (laughs) it. It's just, (laughs) and yeah, Lawnmower Man, that thing where you look at it and you're like, what the fuck is this now? Yeah. Does it have that 90s filter too, where it's kind of like neon or like maybe darker looking? Oh, this looks like it was also shot by the person who did the fucking crow. Yeah. 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 That kind of filter style, right? Everything has that kind of noirish look to it. Everything is really heavy shadows, but then there's weird floodlights in the very deep background of a backyard. You know, there's lots of fucking weird blue neon in the goth club. Just, it's bananas. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed the hell out of it. And honestly, like, if somebody announced tomorrow, oh yeah, fucking Severin is putting this out on Blu-ray, I would buy it, hands down. So, I enjoyed it enough that I would definitely give that one a recommend. Last thing I want to talk about real quick before we jump into this movie. So, Heather and I did something really fun. We found out very last minute we are moving. I guess I can go ahead and say that now. So, let's just say that we are busy. Our minds are elsewhere. So, I did not know about this event at all. But apparently, right up the fucking road from us in Memphis, there was the Joe Bob Briggs Jamboree. So, they did a whole weekend-long event at the Malco Drive-In. They showed Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, our fucking favorite. Yes. Hell yes. fucking yeah. So they, they showed <laughs> it on the opening night because Joe Bob has had a fucking axe to grind toward that movie forever. They showed a compilation of clips of him over the last 40 years just being like, Halloween 3 sucks. Halloween 3 makes no sense. Halloween 3, like, why the fuck did they make this movie? It's just him <laughs> shitting on this movie. And hasn't Darcy been like, fuck you, we need to do this Basically, movie yes. for like the longest time. <laughs> so this was like the whole big event. They did a live episode of The Last Drive-In, which I'm assuming is probably going to be like a Shutter special sometime soon, if not by the time this recording comes out. But they had fucking Tom Atkins come. Hell yes. Hell yeah. And do some Q&A stuff in between. And he was fucking awesome. Mr. Steal Yo Girl. (laughs) Yep. Tom Atkins. (laughs) Also had Stacey Nelkin show up as well. Uh, Oh, that's awesome. She was the co-star in that movie. Nice, yeah. And the fucking director, Tommy Lee Wallace. Wow. Whoa, really? (laughs) He was also there. So it was great having all three of them on stage talking about this insane movie and Joe Bob just being fucking ornery and angry that he's having to fucking put up with entertaining the idea that this movie is excellent. So yeah, it was fun. We did the tickets where you could sit in a lawn chair kind of right up the first few rows instead of sitting in your car, which seems like on one hand it would be the worst considering it was like 100 fucking degrees in Memphis in the middle of summer. But on the other hand, like it was better, I guess, than sitting in your car with no air conditioning turned on or just burning fucking gas. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. Night two, we did not go to. We literally just blew up there on the Friday night at the last minute. But night two, they did a double feature of Rock and Roll High School and Bubba Hotep. And then night three, they did like short film kind of stuff. There were 
lots of other guests there. Kelly Mulroney. Oh, that would have been awesome. Fred Williamson, PJ Souls. So there were a lot of other people there that we just didn't get to see, that just we didn't go to the other night. So we had a blast. It was a lot of fun for like a very last minute, let's just drop everything and go up there kind of deal. So definitely enjoyed it. Keep an eye out on Shudder if it's not out by now for like a summer spectacular thing for Halloween 3. So definitely, definitely fun time. The interviews that they did with the stars and the director were fantastic. So had a lot of fun with that one. If I remember correctly, way back last time we talked about Atkins and like a major way, you mentioned that Heather just doesn't like seeing him. I recall that as well. Horror movies. So or movies in general. Yeah. So Heather finally was like, you know what? Yes, Tom Atkins, the man in real life, perfectly pleasant, charming dude. Seems like he would be a lot of fun to work with. Tom Atkins in every movie that he's in, he's the fucking worst. I can't stand it. <laughs> <laughs> and I still don't fuck understand it but you know uh, whatever to each their own yeah i mean in my opinion tom atkins fucks <laughs> that was so much that of the rules. topic of conversation uh, <laughs> was just bro how did you fucking manage to like bag every single woman that you're with in every single movie that you do you know so much of it was just how are you so fucking bad <laughs> in every movie. <laughs> so, yeah, it was definitely a lot of fun. And to tie it all back to the episode we're doing today, he was in Creep Show, yes, right? absolutely. With Romero, so. Yes, and he had very, very good things to say about working with Romero and how wonderful of a dude he was. So, that was very heartwarming yeah. to hear. Just, it's amazing that, like, he worked with Carpenter, Romero, more than once, from what I know, right? Yeah. And Argento, even. Yeah, he worked with fucking everybody. Yeah, Tommy Lee Wallace, Sean Cunningham. Just a gambit of genre directors, yeah, totally. it looks like. I would like to make a simple comment on the fact that I've always wondered about the fact of why Joe Bob talks shit about Halloween 3. However, this was the man who introduced me to the Killer Rabbit movie, Night of the Leapist. <laughs> you know, as well as several other films, but Night of the Leapist stands the fuck out as a 12 year old me yeah i mean that's that's definitely like on our list of commentary track <laughs> movies eventually i've been wanting to watch uh, have an excuse to watch that movie for the longest fucking time yeah heather and i actually watched that uh like a year or two ago for valentine's day because we always watch killer animal movies i actually made some rabbit stew for that it was a fun time uh, bunnies hell yeah Cool. So let's go ahead and jump into the movie that we're discussing today, which once again, if you haven't figured this out already, being that it is Dead Boy Summer, and we've said over and over we're doing the three main Romero dead movies. This is Day of the Dead. We did night. We got into dawn, and now we are fully into the heat of the day. This one's from 1985. As the zombie apocalypse is in full swing, a group of scientists and military remnants struggle to survive in an underground bunker in Florida, of all places. God, what a <laughs> terrible place to be stuck in. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And the apocalypse, fuck. Tensions between the two groups continue to rise in a constantly wavering balance of hope and nihilism. So here is a sneak peek of what we're about to chat about. First came the night, then came the dawn. Now comes the most eagerly awaited day in horror film history. George A. Romero's Day of the Dead. We've been punished by the creator. He visited a curse. Hello! 
few remaining, their only hope of survival is to find a cure. You're wasting time trying to define what's happening. But the odds are against them. We're in the minority now. Something like 400,000 to one by my calculations. And so is Captain Rhodes. Anybody else have any questions about the way things are going to run around here from now on? Their one chance is Bub. It's working on instinct. A deep, dark, primordial instinct. But their time is running out. They can be fooled, don't you see? They can be tricked into being good little girls and boys. Same way we were tricked into it. on promise of some reward to come. But when the tricks wouldn't work... Their world fell apart. Aaron, Aaron, James apparently was in the military. Return the salute. See what he does. I'm not going to salute that thing. (laughs) So we've done Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and now Day of the Dead. Yes, Romero continued on with his zombie movies past Day of the Dead, but it seems for like a lot of people, these three are like the perfect trilogy of Romero zombie movies. Before like we get into anything else, let's open the door uh, with James. Like James, how do you feel about this movie in regard to like the other Romero movies? Do you like this movie? I know you've talked about a couple times in the past how you like you would like to see more military horror. Is this kind of a good example of that to you? Floor is yours. To start off uh, with the initial question, I love this movie. Honestly, the actual way that I came into the Romero zombie movies was through this movie, because this was the first one I I saw it in ass-backward order. I saw this (laughs) one first, then I saw Night of the Living Dead, then I saw Day of the Dead, or Dawn of the Dead, rather. And specifically, because I have a weird memory, I remember watching this, I want to say I had to be nine or ten years old, and it was back when USA had horror movies on Saturday. And I just remember the preview that they had before with the arms coming out of the wall and I was like holy shit well me as a kid I was like oh let me watch this and watched it liked it then but then I was like well how the hell did all this start so from there went back to trying to figure out where it started which took years later when I saw Night of Living Dead for the first time on MTV actually of all places and then went from there but overall and I've always said this really about the Romero films because there's fucking six of them i think the night through day trilogy is perfect love the man god rest uh loved all of them had my issues with survival of dead but yeah who didn't (laughs) (laughs) but from night being the start and this being the closeout to where at this point all fucking hope has been lost you don't know if they're the last survivors you don't know anything yeah you only know that they are there and they have to deal with it and they're human beings which i've always loved ramiro for is that making humans into humans yeah there's going to be some people who have hope some people who 
want to do some ill shit, and then others who just become nihilistic dickheads who want to fucking kill everybody or do whatever. So, yeah, love that. Have loved this movie forever. It's been one of my standouts in my mind. I would never not say it's one of my favorite zombie movies. Yeah, The military aspect is kind of funny for me now because, by and large, all the military people in this movie are total fucking chodes. Yeah, they are. <laughs> they really are, yeah. Especially Rhodes. <laughs> but yeah. at the same time, it's really, at certain times, when you know how people react in standard situations of getting shot at or getting bombed or this, that, and the other, you get to see what they're like with no hope. And that makes them into, essentially, worse than the damn zombies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and something I thought was really impressive about this movie is, even though we've come media res into the apocalypse you can kind of tell what these guys were like in the military when things were still normal they still all seem like they have this weird egotistical edge or like are completely not at all should be in the military but they just are um like you could just tell like what they were like and it's just that now that shit has hit the fan they can be their true selves and like cranked to 11 basically well it's it's that but it's also just the fact that Once there is no longer authority, there is no chain of command, there is no structure, there is no society, right? Like, there's nothing keeping people in line. There's no order. We don't live in a society. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. People fucking power trip. That's the biggest thing is just, you know, these guys you could tell were probably grunts. I think yeah. most of them were privates. Like, most of them were privates except for Captain Rhodes, I think. Yeah, but now most of them are in actual positions of power. So, of course, they're doing what a lot of people do, which is fucking power trip. And just that toxic kind of addictive thing is driving them. I mean, Rhodes goes full maniacal at points in this, and you can tell it's clearly just because nobody is keeping him in fucking check, right? Even just the dumb shit of, I'm gonna literally carry, like, two 357s with me. Yeah. (laughs) And, like, just fucking have them hanging out at all times is the most, like, cowboy dumb shit, you know? But also, like, the costume design of that is kind of rad, I'll admit. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, a little bit. It's definitely an iconic kind of look, but it's just one of those oh you're kind of a dickhead right <laughs> you yeah it's just absolutely show off along with that comment i mean I- i've seen motherfuckers deployed who have carried corinthian blades out on mission and it's <laughs> like it- it- it's going into that aspect where it's uh, like dude you're kind of a douche yeah and i really don't want to see what happens if you are our last line of discipline and command yeah well and, and that's the other thing too is like there's also a dynamic that the movie does pick up on which does exist unfortunately because the military is a microcosm of society in general but just the dynamic of officers to enlisted sometimes yeah you definitely see that on display here too with Rhodes. it's to the point where i was kind of almost questioning like why some of the privates were even listening to Rhodes at, at certain points because he's kind of an asshole to them too and like straight up threatens them with murder multiple times so it, it was interesting to see everything that was going on with their dynamic i will say this so james i don't know if you've listened to our night and dawn episodes yet but i'm gonna compare this with the halloween series and like the way i feel about these movies night of the living dead and like the original halloween are just undisputed masterpieces that, that can't be argued they are cinema like they are what they are they're 
probably technically the best movies. When I first watched Dawn, I was less than impressed. I had to actually watch it a second time to really appreciate it. But Dawn has sat with me and like I really enjoy Dawn the more I thought about it. Day of the Dead, right off the get-go. I was like, this movie fucking rules. This is like my <laughs> Halloween 3, where like, yeah, Night is the better movie, but I think Day of the Dead is the most fun out of the three. I do kind of go back and forth. Day hasn't kind of sat with me as much as Dawn did, but I think initially Day was just more of a blast, yeah. even though there is a lot of people talking, just having these conflicts with each other. But there was just such an interesting premise here with the idea of this small group of military thinking they're keeping the country together or at least like their little mission together. They've lost contact with Washington and then the dynamic between the scientists and them. And you have this one scientist kind of doing some shady shit, trying to teach zombies how to be like sort of human again. This is also one where we are basically skipping the entire first act that the other two movies have already done, which is, oh my God, something's happening. What's going on? Oh, the dead are coming back to life? what okay cool society is collapsing around us i guess we need to find shelter now okay we found shelter cool now we need to hole up in here for a little while and try to stew the movie basically jumps all of that shit and just jumps to okay fuck we've been together batting our heads against the wall for like months now like what the fuck are we doing right it just skips all the stuff that okay you've seen this before we've done this twice lots of other movies have already covered the same exact ground again let's just go right to okay everything's falling apart now what do we do and it kind of goes from there and I like the way it sets that up because the opening scene basically is them flying around the helicopter and then like shouting out into this abandoned city basically looking for any survivors and at first it's a ghost town and like Aaron you and I have talked a couple times about how one of the more interesting moments in horror movies is when you're in or even just in life when you're in a place that was normally populated by people and it's no longer populated by people and no one's around it's empty there's something eerie and interesting to that that idea is really cool and just when you see all the zombies shuffling out and become a horde it's really interesting and it really good way of showing up yeah like is anyone even alive are we the last people alive on in the country or on earth and i love that immediately that this movie reveals with the zombies i think the first zombie you see is the one that's completely missing its lower jaw and it's just like a tongue hanging <laughs> out like a doctor tongue i think is what they like <laughs> jokingly called that one yeah and immediately showed oh this movie has a budget now yeah. <laughs> this isn't dawn of the dead or night of the living dead zombies these zombies are legit and yeah the zombie designs and the, these movies and the fucking effects and makeup in this movie. This is Savini now has a decade under his belt or like several years under his belt from Dawn and like he's fucking showing off. This was some impressive shit even for this time period. There is such a huge leap in his makeup abilities and the fact that it's not just him and a handful of assistants. It's now him and Howard Berger and Greg yeah. Nicotero, the B and the N in K and B effects. Greg Nicotero obviously would go on to be kind of the main fucking dude running The Walking Dead. He's got these two guys working with him as well. This is also a time where foam latex became a thing that people were using regularly and experimenting with and figuring out all the cool shit that you can do. So the makeup in this movie and the effects in this movie is like such a fucking huge light speed jump ahead from where just the last movie was. This movie is really, really known for having stellar makeup. Easily, this 
this is one of the best makeup movies of the 80s, in my opinion. And a lot of it still holds up really well. Yeah, I mean, when you get to the scene in Frankenstein's lab and there's yeah. corpses that are half cut open, one is literally just like, yeah. what, a brain yeah. at one point? Just nothing but And gas. stuff is just moving on its own still. All of that looked great, even like in modern yeah. standards. Fantastic. Yeah, totally. I like, to James's point, the fact that you know all the Romero movies, to varying degrees, deal with the whole idea of people with different viewpoints, backgrounds, opinions, experience, whatever, right? Everybody has a fucking different opinion. And so you've got this group of people together with this life or death kind of scenario, and they're also like all fucking right on top of each other clumped together in this pressure cooker. Just all of the social dynamics between these people going back and forth. That is always an interesting aspect, but I think this movie of these three handles that the best and in the most interesting way. And I think has maybe the most interestingly diverse group of characters in terms of their different backgrounds and opinions. And I honestly think this is maybe the most humanized group because every character in this cast has moments where you identify with them, you side with them, you are absolutely fucking disgusted with them, you empathize with what they're dealing with in that moment, and then you want to fucking, you know, ring their necks. Just everybody in this cast has moments where you're not just seeing them as, oh, this is the military guy, this is the sad guy, this is the hysterical woman, this is the token whatever person. This cast feels the most grounded and realistic of any of the three movies, in my opinion. Just the way that it kind of goes back and forth and shows you the good, the bad, the ugly, everything about who these characters are as people, I find to be endlessly watchable. I I think two things that really worked for me were in some ways were the first viewing of Dawn didn't work was there was an actual antagonist. There was a bad guy. And like the other two movies really kind of didn't have that. There were some characters that close to it, especially Don. There really wasn't a bad guy, quote unquote, in that movie. Then the other thing is this movie felt like the perfected balance between real like post-apocalyptic hopeless situation horror and seriousness with a little bit of camp comedy with some of the zombie design and and other aspects dawn was it faltered maybe because of like the low budget and the look of the zombies they looked like they were supposed to be in a comedy but they weren't whereas this movie feels like there's still a little bit of a slight comedic edge to it but this feels like a better balance of serious tone to it than dawn did in my opinion yeah because you bounce from miguel having extreme fucking PTSD literally abusing his partner to oh there's a fucking ballerina zombie you know it's just these wild fucking kind of whiplash things but it's all balanced very well to your point and I think honestly to both of your points at best an antagonist from Night of Living Dead was arguably Cooper but in Dawn of the Dead it becomes this almost Star Trek-y 
Roddenberry-esque. There's a little conflict in the beginning, yeah. but at the end of the day, everybody gets along all the way till the end, and uh, essentially they're still united at the end. But this is just Jump Street, and to your point about Miguel, Aaron, a really cool, humanized view with his PTSD, even when he's on the loudspeaker in the town, there's this hopelessness when he's yelling hello over and over and over again because he knows there's nothing there but then at the same time he's doing it but at the end of the day he's completely lost hope for anything yeah and i think if we want to go into real world horror shit that character specifically encompasses all of the dark hopeless stuff about chaos and life and, and like randomness that existential kind of dread right his character and like his whole entire arc kind of encompasses all the horror of what we can relate to because he is having ptsd he views himself as a weak link and he takes out his frustration and abuses his partner and his partner is arguably the strongest person in yeah. the, and smartest person in the entire group but her vulnerability is him because they are in this abusive relationship yeah. she does love him but he's not willing to like get help but at the same time you also have Rhodes and the other soldiers trying to get him to be a man like get over it you know we need all our manpower you're still under my command blah 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 and then ultimately towards the end what happens to him and what he does basically being suicidal and taking everything down with him fuck like when you think about it that's deep dark and you know you can only understand everything that happened before the camera started rolling like to his character that led to this moment and what's funny is and i actually just thought about it in contrast to all of those characters you have john who literally is trying to make a life in his own world. Yeah, John and Bill are like the most similar to the people in Dawn, right, making yeah. this normalized. Or trying to like recreate recreate normality. the world that they lost. The world that's just fundamentally like never going to be there again. Again, it's, it's the exact same thing we talked about in the last episode in terms of what we've all experienced in the last two years with COVID and just trying to like make things as back to the way that they were normal in air quotes you know people doing dumb shit like oh yeah we're gonna do a fucking beach party and it's gonna be in our houses <laughs> and over zoom and jesus like what are we doing in right a cave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. so you know it's that same type of dynamic but i like that they are just one aspect of you know this entire cast of characters that we have now uh, there's this one scene with john and bill and sarah she goes to them in the middle like middle of the night to basically drink with them and hang out and that's where you find out like that they've made that back part of their trailer into like a beach setting of trying to normalize this life well it's interesting because you see this dynamic between like the worldviews of sarah and john and how they're different and john's point is after all this stuff will remain buried if we make a new human race the thing i hope is to leave this stuff buried it's just files and paperwork it means nothing to anyone now that the world has ended but at the same time she is still has a little bit of what frankenstein has dr logan of we can figure this out we can like end this zombie problem you kind of agree with both of them and you see both their points but that whole like monologue that john gives to her is fucking like one of the best monologues in any movie you were sent down here to do a job my job is to fly the whirly bird i've been doing that job just fine you have the protection of this facility you eat our food you drink our water and you don't lift a finger to help (laughs) we don't believe in what you're doing is sarah you know what all they keep down here in this cave? Man, they got the books and the records of the top 
500 companies. They got a defense department budget down here. They got microfilm with tax return and newspaper stories. They got immigration records and census reports. And they got official accounts of all the wars and plane crashes and volcano eruptions and earthquakes and fires and floods and all the other disasters that interrupted the flow of things in the good old U.S. of A. Now, what does it matter, Sarah, darling? All this filing and record keeping. We ever gonna give a shit? We even gonna get a chance to see it all? This is a great big 14-mile tombstone with an epitaph on it that nobody gonna bother to read. Now here you come, here you come with a whole new set of charts and graphs and records. What you gonna do? Bury them down here with all the other relics of what once was? I'ma tell you what is. Yeah, I'ma tell you what is. You ain't never gonna figure it out. Just like they never figured out why the stars are where they're at. It ain't mankind's job to figure that stuff out. So what you're doing is a waste of time, Sarah. And time is all we got left, you know. What I'm doing... It's all there's left to do. Shame on you. There's plenty to do. Plenty to do. So as long as there's you and me and maybe some other people, we could start over. Start fresh. Get some babies. And teach them, Sarah. Teach them never to come over here and dig these records out. You want to put some kind of explanation down here before you leave? Here's one as good as any likely to find. We've been punished by the Creator. He visited a curse on us. So we might get a look at what hell was like. Maybe he didn't want to see us blow ourselves up and put a big hole in the sky. Maybe he just wanted to show us he was still a bus man. Maybe he figured we was getting too big for our bridges, trying to figure his shit out. Yeah, I think there's something to be said about acknowledging and accepting mortality and not just for yourself. I mean, here we are. It's 2022. It's been a wild couple of years in a lot of ways, right? Fuck. What are things going to look like next year? What are things going to look like two more years from now? And just accepting the fact that, yeah, sure. Okay, I could go at any given time. You know, you might be okay with that, but there's that crushing existentialism of having to actually accept and come to terms with the fact that, oh, like, the world and society as I know it could just be fucking gone in a year, and it's not coming back. Right. You know, as desperately as Sarah's trying to hold on to like, but we can fix this. We can stop it. We can reverse this. Things can go back to normal. Just all of her hope and optimism. And at the end of the day, John is just like, bruh, what does any of this matter? We we matter. We are still here. We need to try to survive. None of this bullshit is worth it. Society is not worth it. The way things were is not worth it. Like, it's not worth trying to get back to the place that we were at. We just have to fucking move forward. 
forward with where we are now. And that's a tough thing to like mentally get yourself to that point where you not only like see that reality for what it is, but accept it and have to move on. It's such a wildly nihilistic, yet in a weird way, kind of optimistic way of, well, if we've got to burn it all down, that means that we can start over and make it whatever we want it to be going forward. So yeah, I really, really fucking love that scene as well. It's easily one of the best parts of the movie, and it has jack shit all to do with actual zombies or guts or guns (laughs) or anything. Yeah, no zombies in that scene. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's good shit. Yeah, but the ride or die crew in this movie are Dr. Bowman, John, and Bill. Those three were the best characters, my favorite characters. Uh, Frankenstein was too. I enjoyed Frankenstein. Bub goes up there with the goopy bastard from Return of the Living Dead as like one of my (laughs) favorites. Yeah, Tarman as one of my favorites favorite zombie characters yeah and we brought it up on the past two romero zombie movies that this one feels like romero finally knows how to write a strong female character Uh and dr sarah bowman there's a very interesting through line between the three female leads yeah these movies and and the fact that the movie is basically her being the protagonist the main one is interesting and she is a great character because like she's still flawed she's still like you just said desperately clinging to this idea that we can bring society back and also like putting up with Miguel's shit for at least a little while and legitimately trying to helping him when all of them are kind of guilty of this. I mean, even John to an extent, because us as the audience can tell right away, like in the beginning of the movie, we know shit's going to hit the fan. This is going to blow up in all their faces. Why are like half these people just not leaving now before like this place is fucked and either Captain Rhodes basically becomes a dictator or like zombies overrun this place, but they all keep trying to make it work work even sarah and it's just like come on y'all need to get the fuck out of here before Rhodes loses his mind or like (laughs) dr logan accidentally turns us into zombies yeah yeah so let's kind of get into the production of this one as well so where we left off with dawn dawn was Big hit. Across the board, it was very successful, made a lot of money, was very critically well accepted. It did well around the entire world as well. So Romero from here landed a three-picture deal with United Film Distribution Company under the condition that one of the three movies be a sequel in his dead series. This was, you know, the same kind of deal we talked about before with Toby Hooper in that, okay, cool, yeah, you're with Canon Films now. You could do whatever you want for two of these movies, but one of them's got to be another Texas Chainsaw movie. And it was kind of like, okay, sure, I'll go ahead and do these two weird passion project, expensive, balls out, you can't tell me no movies. And then I'll, sure, I'll do whatever, you know, you want me to do. So Romero took this deal. He opted to go ahead and make Night Riders from 1981, which is kind of a weird (laughs) fucking drama with Ed Harris, like you said, and Tom Savini, like being kind of the main antagonist. It's about a group of fucking Ren Faire reenactor people who are all a motorcycle family as well. (laughs) What? It's just, yeah, it's just like this whole fucking movie about artistic integrity and, you know, what it means to be committed to your art and all this bullshit, but it's literally about a group of Ren Faire dudes who are all, like, into motorcycles as well. Then he followed that up with 
Creepshow from 1982, uh, which was the anthology written with Stephen King. That was also a pretty big hit. That is absolutely on our list of stuff to get around to one of these days. And while the deal was hot, again, he went ahead and took his time to develop this third Dead movie. So he didn't get started on it right away, but he was kind of working on it in the background little by little. So he was granted final cut of the movie, but the producers demanded that the like giant fucking epic huge massive script that he had got whittled down pretty hard and that Romero specifically got a more commercially viable R rating for this movie because remember Night again came out at a time where there was no MPAA so the ratings were not a thing Dawn came out at a time where there was the MPAA and they struggled back and forth to get the rating that they wanted they got an X which X was mostly associated with porn at the time and there's obviously no sex or nudity in these movies so he opted to go out unrated but that meant that very few theaters would then show the movie so the producers this time were like yeah you have to get a fucking R rating so that we can actually put this into a large number of theaters. So Romero reworked his, and this is in air quotes, gone with the wind level script, according to him, but <laughs> he still demanded that the film get released unrated. He just didn't want to have to fucking worry about the MPAA and cuts and all that. He just said, fuck it. If it's on less screens, I don't give a shit. We will make this happen. I want it unrated. The producers were like, cool, we'll do that, but we're going to literally cut your budget in half from $7 million to $3.5 million. So the original scope and scale of this movie was supposedly fucking huge epic massive and this was just the more stripped down version of that which honestly we can always talk about the like woulda coulda bins but I think there's nothing wrong with this final product. It is oh, hell no. small uh -uh. and tight and has that claustrophobic feel that the other two movies have. So I think it's totally in line with what this trilogy is. You don't have to get into like Lord of the Rings level scope and scale yeah. to make the story effective. And again, like it's a zombie horror movie and like there is a good chunk of this movie where it's basically people talking, people yeah. talking and going at each other's throats Super and it's still fucking yeah. fascinating and fun to watch the first draft of the screenplay was over 200 pages which <laughs> wow jesus <laughs> jesus right like again general rule of thumb is one page equals one minute so we're talking about <laughs> yeah you guys have read scripts right yes yeah what's the longest script you've ever read uh, i mean i've read some long ones that are kind of about in this level but again 200 pages is over three hours you know if we're going by the general rule of thumb that again one page is one minute so again he eventually reworked this whole thing and scaled it down to an 88 page fifth draft to accommodate the budget constraints right so that's like uh, right about that 90 minute mark filming began in fall of 84 all of the street scenes at the beginning of the film were shot in Fort Myers, Florida. The helicopter pad and the end beach scenes were filmed in Sanibel, Florida. Romero was living in that area of Florida at the time, so it was like, oh cool, here's local nearby places that we could shoot this. The Florida scenes were apparently some of Ernest Dickerson's earliest work. Wow, like really? He was still doing early camera work stuff um, before he was working with Spike Lee as his DP, which I didn't know that until I was watching some behind the scenes shit. And Romero was like, oh, yeah, he did fly down and helped with all that stuff. So that was like a neat. OK, cool. Yeah. And, and again, Ernest Dickerson's another one of those guys that would fucking go on to like do all the big, huge mid-season and season finale episodes for the first couple of seasons of Walking Dead. And 
And it's this movie working with Nicotero that they probably got hooked up together. And that's how they worked on Walking Dead later on. All the underground base scenes were filmed in a real mine that was later turned into a fucking commercial center outside of Pittsburgh in the Wampum, Pennsylvania area. (laughs) There is a fucking delightful, hilarious promotional video for this mine that was filmed in the 80s. And it's just like, oh, yeah, this is a great area for commercial development. Imagine the possibilities as you move your business into one of our underground limestone walled fucking bunkers (laughs) natural limestone deposits historically were used only for the stone until the 1950s when companies began to discover the security and constant temperature of this rock structure to be an ideal alternative to conventional surface buildings this group fucking pitched this idea of oh it's a constant temperature and we can control the humidity and all that is this like a cold war thing like <laughs> no this was just, just a, fucking a weird 80s thing where <laughs> they were like oh yeah we can like build to suit your needs and it's just showing them putting up fucking the weird fake brick walls god this is like a bioshock <laughs> <Yeah>. situation <laughs> like- again this is like the most vhs 80s promo video you could probably find it on youtube it's definitely on the Scream Factory Blu-ray for this movie, but it just had the bad video transitions and titles and everything and just random guys with mustaches and the double bridge glasses being like, uh, yeah, I moved my business into Wampa Mine a year ago and I love their customer service and their ability to get goods in and out of the Pittsburgh area very efficiently. It's just a fucking eight minute video of this kind of bullshit, but it's just wild that this is what this was, you know? It's the same call is sit down kids let's tell you about the dangers of dnd and satanism basically (laughs) yeah (laughs) this is like some real tim and eric shit but it's kind of the same deal as dawn of the dead where romero was just like oh yeah i fucking heard about this crazy thing down the street you know in pittsburgh and thought like oh yeah fuck it that would be kind of cool to like do a movie in there good old monroeville mall (laughs) yeah So, yeah, this mine stayed at a steady 50 degrees Fahrenheit, which seems like, okay, that wouldn't be bad at all. Severe high humidity, which caused tons of technical issues with all the fucking camera gear, all the electronics, and all the makeup effects. Just everything constantly just soaked in humidity. Apparently the drive from Pittsburgh into this mine was kind of a slog. Just with the traffic and everything, it was tough to like get everybody just back and forth and back and forth. Question, did he like do the thing with extras to play zombies where they got like a dollar a hot dog and a t-shirt or a hat or something? Same deal. They got paid a dollar and they got a hat that said I was one of the zombies in day of the dead the same same deal i would kill for a ha- that hat yeah. authentic one that someone got i'm honestly surprised that fright rags or cavity colors or one of these horror movie clothing sites has not made a recreation of either that hat or the t-shirt that they were given in dawn of the dead that seems like a slam dunk yeah james did you know about that i knew about that with dawn of the dead but for day of the dead yeah. i did not know they repeated that process at all Yep. And that is hot. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Here is your dollar. Here is your hat. Thank you. 
Go to makeup. <laughs> so again, the slog drive back and forth to this mine got to the point where the cast and crew were just fucking sleeping in the mine. They would just break out cots and sleeping bags and shit and just sleep there just to keep from having to go back and forth. Savini said that he spent a shit ton of time there because they're pulling masks and appliances and all this kind of stuff. And then they're immediately going into doing makeup for people at two or three in the morning to get them ready for filming. And so then if you just got to keep fucking rinse repeating, you just get to the point where you just do it all there and you just fucking deal with it. But pretty much everybody in the cast and crew got fucking weird health issues from filming there. Just everybody's lungs and bronchitis and all kinds of pneumonia and just constant wet, you know, lung body shit. But I do love the atmosphere. Like, that's the crazy thing is this is such a fucking insane. Oh, God, y'all actually went through all the bullshit to film this movie. But the endless fucking halls and all the giant long tunnels with the like dot, 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 just going off into infinity lights and the experience exposed rock walls like i love all of that shit i love all the like neon lights in there you know and it's cool to just like how much history background and context that you can infer just from this set right like you keep seeing oh there's all these boats and other vehicles and shit in here like why is all this stuff in here and you kind of think well i guess at one point in time there were a lot of other people in this mine and people were using it as an evacuation point in reality it was just like well people store their fucking boats here <laughs> you know <laughs> and they just kind of work that into the movie we didn't even really talk about it but another part that was made this kind of creepy and more dreadful when the first things you see are like those graves that they keep on the top side right outside the bunker you can see that multiple soldiers and multiple people had died and their group maybe was like twice as big at one point and now it's not yeah it opens up with oh who died today and it was the guy who was in command yeah well to the same effect the main giant meeting area mess hall whatever you want to call it it's super interesting to see how many fucking empty tables and empty chairs there are now you know and you could tell they clearly had this place designed and built out for way more fucking people than what are left so it definitely gives you that ticking clock kind of feel little by little as people are like slowly just one by one they keep getting knocked off and it also highlights too because like there's that scene where she like sneaks out in the middle of night and like all the soldiers are just fucking fight club fighting each other and spilling (laughs) out of their barracks area just fist fighting each other they never explain it they never like bring any details beyond they're just fucking fed up with everything including each other yeah they're just so over everything well like the one thing that i've always noticed about it and in terms of the actual caves this is probably one of the only films that i can think of really off the top of my head that i can always remember where i got that creepy and the thing is the movie wasn't scary i i will always say that it was not scary it was very fun but at the same time this one was very foreboding in that way especially in contrast to dawn of the dead where it's this lit up super representation of capitalism indoor mall but at the same time now you have this dark dank cave but the yeah. only other movie that I thought about that with was, and you were talking about slashers earlier, was the original My Bloody Valentine. Yep. Yeah, and we talked about that at, uh, when we covered it this past Valentine's Day. We talked about the idea of claustrophobia and the mind setting, because that mine is even more of a confined, like yeah. you are in a fucking mine, you can't even 
even stand like all yeah, the way up. It's much more claustrophobic for sure. Yeah. This one at least like was tunnels and shit. Yeah. And you combine that with a motherfucker running around with a pickaxe, it doesn't work well. Yeah. No. <laughs> to your point of what's scary. And again, just like the other ones, the horror in this is all the humanity behind it and the stuff we talked about earlier of like the dread behind society and crumbling as we know it. And some people are still hanging on to the idea that we can fix it and others are have already come to the terms with no it's ended but we can rebuild in the ashes and then there are other people who just can't handle it either way and that's mostly the military people because they had that structure because that's what the military provides is like structure that's kind of crumbling before their very eyes and they're kind of crumbling with it I will say though this movie had like one of the better jump scares and one that legit got me in the very beginning with the hands coming out of the wall during that dream sequence such a memorable moment like it happens at the very beginning of this movie and it love the setup of her staring at the calendar and it's heading towards Halloween yeah. actually there's only a few handful of jump scares in this movie they're usually the dream sequences and you know occasionally like the zombie trope of like a zombie kind of coming out of nowhere and lunging at somebody but otherwise if gore is your thing like this movie will definitely get you especially in all the scenes with Dr. Frankenstein and him running his tests we haven't even really talked that much about that yet then you have on top of all that horror this sci-fi spin to it with everything he's doing there's a bit of a tragic horror to like watching bub try and figure out and obviously remember certain things but it's infantile the way he's doing it It, you kind of feel for the zombie like this is the first movie i actually feel sympathetic towards a zombie especially like what happens to his friend quote unquote and dr frankenstein and you have the male female the other two that they pull from the group and bring them in there for experimentation and both of them seem scared and terrified and confused and like not knowing what's going on and you know we're supposed to just think of them as these mindless beasts you know but they were once people and so there is that weird you know the audience having to reckon with that fact and see oh these legitimately used to be living breathing thinking people and there's still a very tiny just in the very back of their heads drop that's still there that whole aspect is not just terrifying in the sense that, you know, you are around people who used to be people, but they're not now, but they kind of might still be, and they might still understand that you want to kill them and eliminate them. But then there's that also extra fear of, well, shit, what if I become a zombie? Am I also going to be trapped in the very back of my head, very like being John Malkovich, the sunken place kind of style, where I'm still conscious and I can still like, you know, see through but I can't actually control that you know there's like that weird fear of essentially becoming a vegetable within your own rotting body that's a very interesting thing that the whole bub character kind of brings up in this movie and speaking of bub man fucking love that character that performance is really really incredible for all the kind of physical acting that he is doing and having to like have that dumb kind of blank stare off into the distance constantly but still convey the idea that there's a little bit of something there just overall fucking sherman howard does a great job with that character Speaking of which, uh, we haven't done this in a little while, Aaron and James, you can join in on this. A running gag in our show is people involved in the movie we're covering have a tie to like 
Batman, specifically like animated Batman. Sherman Howard has a direct tie to like animated Batman. Can you guys guess what and from which Batman show? Batman Beyond, um, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Uh, Yep. Fuck, because it's been a while since I've watched it. He voiced Derek Powers, Blight, who is the main bad guy of Batman Beyond, basically. Like the CEO of Wayne Enterprises, who becomes like a radioactive goop monster. Oh, shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, like the -the glow-in-the-dark skeleton guy. Yeah, and he also voiced Lex Luthor on Superboy, which was in syndication from like 1990 to 92. He's still working. He's still on TV shit, and he does voice acting he's done he did voice acting for a lot of uh video games actually and some random choice deep cut video games that i really enjoyed during the ps2 era he did summoner 2 and jade empire that like random bioware game and he even provided voices on like the star wars the old republic mmorpg really huh. yeah. yeah yeah he had a shit ton wow. of credits yeah, i was gonna say i knew about batman beyond i didn't know who he had specifically played i knew about superboy he also played a character on one of my favorite episodes of star trek the next generation definitely a good one yeah aaron you're right his physical acting in this and like expressions and everything and all of that makeup especially like is top notch you really care about the zombie and like enjoy it as a character by the end of the movie yeah well also it's the aspect of and aaron you mentioned the male and female zombie and of course bub overall specifically i remember that the zombie who was punished quote unquote and was left in the room with the lights off He's kind of like, oh, shit, the lights are off. What's going on? And with everything we've been talking about, this movie humanizes the zombies and actually makes the humans into the monsters, quote unquote. Yeah. Which is something that is a through line through all of Romero's zombie movies, even in night to an extent. And this was something I brought up with Aaron so far in both the Romero movies. Again, it's fascinating to me that with Romero being like the grandfather of like modern zombie trope and everything like video games, movies, TV, etc. It's interesting to me that always a thing with him, even in night, is a human aspect to the zombies because in night they use tools and shit. And there is a brief moment or two in Dawn of maybe some recognition of humanity and the zombies there. Actually, I did watch Land. I actually caught Land in theaters when I was a teenager. And I know in Land, that's all about there being a certain zombie that starts leading a group of zombies and teaching them. And, you know, the humans are the monsters in that movie, too. So it's an interesting thing that, like, that trope doesn't necessarily carry over as much in other zombie lore in modern day as you would think. A lot of it more is The Walking Dead. There's absolutely no humanity left in them there is a pack there is a herd kind of aspect it's all about the larger group rather than looking at individual zombies yes yeah the egalitarian zombie yeah the (laughs) force of nature zombie yeah. yeah jump back i guess into the production and you know, makeup because we've been talking about the makeup back and forth this whole time obviously savini comes back he had been in night riders as one of the main characters and he did makeup effects for creep show like i mentioned earlier as well both greg nicotero and howard Berger worked under savini on this movie nicotero even plays one of the soldiers he's the guy that gets killed and they then find his decapitated head still rolling around in dr frankenstein's lab joe Pilato's. Death scene 
involved real pig guts. Yeah. Because we keep learning more and more that this was a thing where people were just like, oh, well, fuck it. I can just go to a butcher shop and buy real guts that will look more realistic, obviously, than anything I could just make. So why not do that? So what happened was they bought all these fucking pig guts, put them in a refrigerator, and somebody then accidentally unplugged this refrigerator while they were gone and filming all the fucking Florida stuff. No, <laughs> that sucks. I remember hearing about this. Yeah. I, I want to say oh, that sucks. It was when I had the original DVD, not the one that's been most recently released. And I watched the commentary, and they were talking about that. Yep. So they then had these hot, stanky, rotten, <laughs> fermented pig guts <laughs> or chitlins. Instead of just going back out and getting fresh pig guts, which I still to this day don't understand, go to the nearest butcher shop and be like, yo, I need guts. <laughs> Gotta cut costs, brah. It had to have been so last minute that they discovered this to the point where they were like, we can't. Like, we don't have time to go do this. So apparently it was fucking miserable, and the stench was overwhelming, and Joe Pilato was throwing up in his own mouth and could barely breathe and everything else, and he's like, through the floor, chest sticking out, fake body, like, he can't go anywhere he can't get away from the stink watching the behind the scenes stuff with them shooting that moment and then it immediately cutting and everybody being like just <laughs> fanning all the stench away was hilarious <laughs> but yeah, savini won his second saturn award for makeup for a romero zombie movie he won for dawn of the dead and he won for this one again so yeah makeup in this is fucking amazing it really is night and day between dawn and this one the hero zombies in this one are so fucking good even the background zombies which we say hero zombies it's the people who get the most detailed makeup who are always in the front of shots whenever there's like group scenes they are always the people who are like up front and center or that get close-ups and then there's always the background zombies that are mostly just like okay there's a mask we put a zombie mask on you you're not really going to be seen in detail that much so we can get away with that but even those look fucking amazing in this movie and this is also the absolute definition of there's a clown zombie and a ballerina zombie and a football player zombie and a yes the football player zombie we have one of everything everybody absolutely just died exactly in the moment of what they were doing in that moment and in what they were doing was all their jobs and hobbies (laughs) moving on from makeup so john harrison did the score which unlike the previous movies that we have discussed which were mostly library music they actually got a full-blown score for this one harrison is a fucking interesting dude yeah i don't know anything about this composer so you're about to educate me yeah so he was a local pittsburgh musician He plays the screwdriver zombie in Dawn of the Dead, right? The one that, like, gets the fucking screwdriver in the ear. He was also Pelinor in Knight Riders, but he is a composer, writer, director, which we keep finding weird instances of, oh, you're a editor slash composer? (laughs) You're a director slash composer. Like, these are weird things that don't normally get together, right? He was the first assistant director and composer on both Creepshow and Day of the Dead. He would go on to compose and direct Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. He wrote and produced the sci-fi channel movie Painkiller Jane. That's come up on our show before. Yep. He produced Diary of the Dead. He wrote and directed Book of Blood, which 
which was a Clive Barker adaptation. He wrote and directed episodes of Tales from the Dark Side, Monsters, Tales from the Crypt, Nightmare Cafe, The New Creep Show. And then this is where I was like, wait, what? He was the writer and director of the Sci-Fi Channel miniseries adaptation of Dune and Children of Dune. Holy shit. Which are both very good. Yeah. If you can stand the like late 90s, early 2000s, bad CGI sandworms, everything is like PlayStation 1 CGI. Very interesting adaptation. If you're the kind of person where you're like, God, I wish we had a five hour version of Dune. It exists. It's out there. You can go watch it. Uh, the production design is really good. That makes so much sense because the other credit you left off here is that he was an executive producer on 2021's Dune. Dune. (laughs) What a fucking wild thing, right? Yeah. So anyway, yeah, this movie premiered June 30th, 1985, middle of summer. Uh, We are just past that point this year. The movie grossed 5.8 million domestically, but again, still hamstrung by its lack of official rating, which meant that most theaters would not exhibit it. And also, too, we talked about this on our Return of the Living Dead companion episode. Didn't that come out the same year as this? And, like, that was a fucking blast. Yes. Yeah. So that was the other factor. That movie came out before this one. And so that's the other thing, too. June 30th is when this movie premiered. It didn't actually come out until later in the year wide. So Return of the Living Dead came out in the middle of summer, was a huge fucking blast and a hit, and it's really fun. This movie kind of got to most theaters by fall, and people were like, okay, we already had a zombie movie, and this one's a bummer, right? So despite it not doing well domestically, I mean, it still made double its budget, but still, it would go on to make $28.2 million internationally, right? So, I mean, it did really well internationally and would sell a fucking ton of home video units. So this movie was like way, way, way more profitable on the back end than it was theatrically. And again, not as critically praised as the first two movies, but it's become a serious cult favorite. We've all talked about this. Y'all gave y'all's opinions and I kind of feel the same way. I appreciate all three of these movies for different reasons. I will 100% say that Night is the most important of them. You know, Dawn is maybe like one of the definitive cult horror movies. This one I think is kind of my favorite of them in terms of the one that I would probably put on. Just if I'm going to throw any of them on, it's probably going to be this one. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized it's kind of similar to like the original Star Wars trilogy. Everyone kind of has a fave. Star Wars is the important one, right? That's objectively like the best one. You know, Empire was kind of bigger and bolder and is most people's favorite one. But then there's like a lot of weirdos who love Return of the Jedi and that's their favorite one. Yeah, I I know a lot of people (laughs) We're like, yeah, Jedi is absolutely my favorite one of the bunch. I'm, I'm a little surprised to hear this from both of you guys because everywhere I've read is like, oh, Dawn is the pinnacle of the three for a lot of people. Dawn is the Empire Strikes Back of the Romero zombie movies for a lot of people. But like for me personally, Day of the Dead was the most fun I've had. Yeah, I think the thing is Night really created a lot of the tropes. Dawn kind of took it to the next level of let's actually think about what society turns into if this kind of thing were to happen, right? And it kind of brings it to that next level. This movie is just nonstop balls to the wall intensity and what people would be doing and what those relationships look like that and just the fun of the makeup and the ridiculous shit and everything else. I mean this in a positive way. This almost felt like a Dawn 2.5. Yeah, this yeah. felt like an expansion of what Dawn was trying to be. Dawn ran so this could 
could fly because this isn't necessarily like reinventing the wheel of society collapsing with zombies like Dawn did. But this is really the true examination of what that's like and the gore and violence that happens is actually on a budget. Again, going back to the way Romero writes characters, especially female characters, feels like he's matured and can actually do it now. And yeah, it just felt like everything that he was trying to exercise in Dawn is really paying off in this movie. Yeah, you can definitely see him grow as a filmmaker through these three movies, for sure. Two points, actually, real quick. With Day, as kind of stated before, it's a full circle. So you have the pinnacle night. Dawn is one of those things where if you want to compare it to COVID, even in the beginning, where it's like, oh, we can we can deal with stuff. We can have the fucking National Guard party where everybody's drinking coffee and beer. And then, oh, shit, there's zombies. Let's just shoot them. And then, oh, we just happen to get stuck in a mall, but we've sealed the mall. Now let's play arcade games and make steak and everything else. But this is the oh shit moment. We're at a fucking stage where it's pretty much over. Yeah. yeah. One quick production side note in terms of one of the actors john amplis who played dr fisher yes honestly my favorite ramiro movie is martin and he played the tutelar character yeah we've talked about martin on and off and that's a movie that i am fucking dying to cover i'm just waiting until that second sight 4k finally gets released so it's at least available to people but shit, if that's one that you're interested in, we'll get you back for that one because I don't know many other people that have seen it. Oh, I, I literally, hands down, it is my favorite Romero movie. And it's also yeah, I really love one it. of those really human films where, to a degree, you don't know what the fuck is going on. And then, in the end, you have an idea and there's a lot of things here and there go, okay, is this really happening? Is this not really happening? Yeah, the ambiguity of it's very yeah. interesting. So us doing this Dead Boy Summer, watching through Romero's, Martin keeps being brought up, especially by Aaron. It's making me hype to do Martin now. Oh, Martin is a gem. Martin is probably one of the only overall horror films where I've truly empathized with a horrible person. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time going, oh shit, is he or isn't he? What's going on? And then all of the human beings who are around him are either just empty to the situation or they're just full on like hey you're a fucking bad person or thing yeah (laughs) Yeah. so to your first point that you made because night did this night made it feel hopeless even though the zombies seemed pretty easily avoidable but like because they were trapped in the house felt like a dangerous situation no one felt like they were ever threatened in dawn and even like even then the people who got bit or like killed it felt like that happened just because the plot needed it to happen or they were stupid or they were stupid yeah like day it feels like they are in a dangerous situation at any point could go like we've said not even from the zombies because the zombies are are slow as fuck but because of the situation they're in in the high stress i thought for sure Rhodes was going to burn somebody in this movie or finally go off the handle and shoot somebody but like (laughs) yeah yeah but yeah, like it's interesting with the the moments of like trying to get us to empathize with certain characters because there's that kill. I'm not gonna say who it is because I don't want to spoil it for anyone who wants to watch. But one of the people who has been kind of a piece of shit throughout the entire movie gets bit and like gets cornered by a bunch of zombies and decides, well, fuck it, I'm gonna commit suicide. And the movie almost does try a little bit and be like, oh man, this sucks for him. He makes a sign of the cross and then like puts a gun under his chin. I thought the camera was going to cut away, by the way, but no, they fucking show him like blow his own brains 
out like he eats the gun but like i was just like eh, I, I i didn't still didn't really have sympathy for that character <laughs> when it happened yeah yeah and like kind of to your point Derek, dawn was and we said this about phantasm it seemed like a video game it's like you mark yeah. up points oh shit you just happen to be in the only fucking indoor mall in the united states apart from Arundel Mills Mall in Maryland, which has a Bass Pro Shop, but I specifically (laughs) know that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, to your point, it kind of was. Wasn't the entire fucking game Dead Rising? Yes. What, three? That premise? Yeah, yeah. Dead Rising was in a mall, and it was very much like Dawn of the Dead. (laughs) You have goblins upbeat music during those times. Well, and the zombies on that especially are like fucking easy mode. Again, I said this on our episode for that, you have to be a complete fucking noob to get killed by one of them whereas in this one they felt like even though we talked about them humanizing there was also still a bit of like a horde pack mentality of zombies because once they enter the facility it's just fucking overrun within minutes with zombies there are certain situations where it doesn't matter how slow and clumsy they are like you get cornered in a room with them you're fucked that's it as far as this movie's legacy is concerned it's been referenced a lot like I was very surprised how many fucking things pop culture wise have referenced this movie specifically i'm glad you're bringing this up because i was gonna bring it up if you didn't so fucking sherman howard appears as bub in a season four episode of walking dead stranger things season three opens with the kids sneaking into a theater playing the movie and the whole night or nightmare sequence with the arms is shown but the one that i was like oh yeah no i've never fucking ever as many times i've listened to this album and watch this movie i've never put this together apparently the fucking gorillas are yeah huge fans of this <laughs> wow gorilla sample like romero yeah they sample the like scene where miguel is yelling out on the megaphone hello is anybody there that's featured in m1a1 <laughs> sample stuff in hip albatross and then they have artwork for demon days that features the calendar on the brick wall from that nightmare sequence so that was super interesting to discover well and they also they also sample one of the like library music bits from dawn of the dead yeah the foreboding that part they sample in like and i think the intro to demon days maybe Yep. Let's talk the cast a minute. Uh, We kind of mentioned a few people already, but Lori Cardiel is definitely kind of the main lead of this one playing Sarah. Her father was apparently a local Pittsburgh television host. And he was a huge fucking supporter of the original movie. He was one of the biggest cheerleaders for Romero and that production. Lori Cardiel got into acting and theater. You know, beyond this, she had done some TV and some shorts, but, you know, she mostly did stage acting, you know, so this was one of the rare on screen appearances for her. Yeah, again, like the lead in Night of the Living Dead, this felt like a star making performance to me. It's interesting. She didn't really do too much after this. Yeah. 
Terry Alexander plays John. He was in The Werewolf of Washington, which <laughs> is apparently fucking uh, Dean Stockwell as a politician who turns into a fucking werewolf. I need to go find this movie now. As do I. It's a comedy film, apparently, too. <laughs> it's a yeah. horror comedy. <laughs> I guess Ziggy didn't tell him that he was going to turn into a werewolf. <laughs> <laughs> he is also in All That Jazz. Speaking of, Blank Check Podcast is doing like a Fosse miniseries right now. So, yeah, he's in that as well if you want some fun like cross-pollination but the movie he's in before day of the dead is flashpoint which i read is a neo-western action thriller film yes starring chris christopherson (laughs) yes right so that was the other one i was about to bring up he did a lot of tv he was in the horror show aka like what house House or, 3. Or House 3, okay. Yeah. He was in Conspiracy Theory, the remake of Gloria, directed by Sidney Lumet, and then The Dark Offerings, which I bring up because we might be having somebody on the show who is involved with that movie soon. McDermott, the like drunk Irish janitor character, is played by Jarleth Conroy. I fucking love that guy. He was in... <laughs> Michael Shimino's Heaven's Gate. He was in a lot of TV and the newer stuff. He was in Across the Universe, the Coen Brothers remake of True Grit. And he's the voice of Aiden O'Malley in Grand Theft Auto 4. So we have multiple video game voice actors in this movie. Captain Rhodes, our main villain, is played by Joseph Pilato. He started off as a very small role in Dawn of the Dead, but just the extended U.S. version where he plays one of the cops who is ditching. There's like the group of cops that they run into who are looting. Oh, on the dock. Like ditching yeah. on the yeah. dock, yeah. Yep. He's one of those guys. And so, of course, there's like this fan theory idea origin that, yeah, those cops just make their way down to Florida and he ends up there and ends up just throwing on a uniform and impersonating a soldier. And so that's kind of how he ended up down there and that it's like the same character. But yeah, he is also in Night Riders. He was in a lot of TV. He is in Pulp Fiction. He is in Wishmaster. He is in Night of the Living Dead, colon, Darkest Dawn. One of the many, many, many remake, reboot, reimagining, re-whatever we want to call it of Night of the Living Dead. Because again, that movie was instantly a public domain entity. My favorite credit I <laughs> I read from him was he was in Digimon Adventures as well as two <laughs> Digimon movies where he voiced Metal Greymon, one of the Digi like Digi character creatures one or whatever. Digimons. One of the Digimons. <laughs> yeah, one of the Digimons. I, d- I was a Pokemon boy. I didn't watch Digimon, but I did that that made me laugh. Richard Liberty plays Logan, aka Dr. Frankenstein. He was in Romero's The Crazies. He was in the final countdown, Flight of the Navigator, Just Cause. Anthony DeLeo Jr., who played Miguel, who was one of Romero's buds, apparently. He is also in Night Riders. He is in Monkey Shines, Two Evil Eyes, Night of the Living Dead, the remake, and then Lorenzo's Oil. So he pretty much stuck with Romero through a lot of his later stuff. Uh, we already mentioned Sherman Howard, who plays Bub. He did a shit ton of TV. He's also in Lethal Weapon 2, Casualties of War, Dark Angel, Ricochet, and The Stand TV miniseries. 
Gary Howard Clark plays Steel. He was in the original version of Gloria, Trading Places, Legal Eagles, Three Men and a Baby, Big, Married to the Mob. He was in a lot of fucking 80s comedies once I actually started digging through his stuff. And then we mentioned John Amplis already, who plays Dr. Ted Fisher. Of course, he plays Martin in Martin um, and was bit parts throughout a lot of Romero's stuff from there and actually wore several different hats for the various Romero movies that he was involved with cool so last thing as we kind of get wrapping up and we're slightly running out of time i cannot fucking believe how many weird spin-off sequels that this movie had oh yeah what it's yeah, completely yeah, yeah. understandable while there why there's a million different again reboot remake reimaginings of the original movie because it went public domain immediately sure i get that this movie however has an unofficial but actually direct sequel that is not a sequel it's a prequel but it has nothing to do with it it has a remake <laughs> and then it has a second remake and then it has a tv series remake i fucking remember hearing about the tv series and i never got around to watching it and now i'm gonna have to go look for it yeah it came out last year for sci-fi yeah. yeah so to preface all this i didn't have a ton of recommendations this week because i watched all of these fucking things for y'all. Of course you did. And I will say, audience who are listening to this episode, you're fucking welcome because these movies were god fucking awful. And I don't normally feel that way when I dig into all the weird sequels and spinoffs of whatever movie we're talking about. But these movies were all pretty overwhelmingly fucking terrible. So... Let's start with Day of the Dead 2, colon, Contagion from 2005. Guys, what's more insane than a zombie apocalypse? And, and then you say, well, I don't know, what is it, Aaron? And then you'd say, a zombie apocalypse in an insane asylum. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this movie was seemingly made as its own movie and then somehow got marketed as a prequel to the Romero movie. This seems like the exact kind of case as Zombie, which we talked about last episode, where they made this movie and they were like, what the fuck do we do with this? We don't know how to market this. We don't know how to put it out. Oh, fuck it. Just call it Day of the Dead 2. Why not? And again, it's not a sequel. It's a prequel because it explains how the outbreak happened, but it's happening in modern day, not the 80s. It's implied that the virus that's causing this is somehow extraterrestrial in origin. Oh my god, what? was designed by the government to unlock human genetic potential. Well, that's the way to do it. The group of crazy people in this insane asylum that get initially exposed, they all seem fine, but they actually have like a weird psychic connection to each other and they only really become okay. zombie when they like finally indulge in eating human flesh right but it's weird because their fucking zombie makeup is really just demon horns poking out of their eyebrows and their cheekbones or like lizard scales like it's not zombie makeup it's like monster makeup well, that's cute <laughs> it's like whatever facial appliances they had just laying around that they bought on clearance at a fucking you know how Halloween spirit spirit <laughs> it's like they just took all those and were like fuck it we're just gonna keep using these everything about this movie was fucking terrible the acting was terrible the worst it was clearly hey we have a location to film in let's make a movie around that that's exactly what it felt like and again it had nothing to do with 
actual fucking Day of the Dead. We then jump to just the straight up remake Day of the Dead from 2008, which was directed by fucking Steve Miner, who did Friday the 13th 2 and 3 and House and Warlock and Halloween H2O and Lake Placid. This movie was dog shit. Fucking awful. Is that the one that had Nick Cannon in it? Yes. It's got fucking yeah. Nick Cannon. <laughs> I was about to say, yeah. This was a straight-to-DVD. I remember this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Mina Suvari, Nick Cannon, Annalyn McCord, who we liked a lot in Excision, and fucking Ving Rams yeah. for all of, like, seven minutes? <laughs> and, of course, he's playing Rhodes, the character Rhodes, right? But he is not in this movie much. Parkour zombies, wall-climbing zombies, like Spider-Man wall-climbing zombies fucking MMA zombies literally putting people in fucking DDTs and body slamming shit. That would at least explain how the apocalypse happened, I guess. Yeah. Oh, this is the most y'all are fucked of yeah. any of these movies as far as the zombies actually being capable. Not really even zombies. zombies. Yeah, like they're not really yeah, zombies. No. They're just super mutants that eat yeah. people. Yeah. T-virus. The underground military installation doesn't even factor into this movie until the last 15 fucking minutes there are also all these bad flash cuts in the editing like all the saw sequels have where it's constantly just like just that (laughs) happening in every fucking that is like a late or mid to late 2000s i am so happy we moved on from oh absolutely (laughs) yeah it's fucking bad so yeah this movie was fucking terrible there is a bub character in this one that's just one of the other military grunt guys who gets bitten and is like no but i'm fine it's okay it's not gonna happen to me and of course he fucking turns but he's still kind of cognizant and they keep bringing him along because he's got a fucking boner for mina suvari and that's what's keeping him like in check (laughs) somewhat human right the fuck whatever what the hell i mean it was mina (laughs) suvari sure yeah (laughs) nick cannon literally is the most fucking stereotypical oh we have a black guy in the movie yeah we need him to constantly just be like damn oh hell no yeah yeah just constantly yeah. like throw out dumb fucking lines and everything has to be some weird fucking joke. He's fucking awful in the movie. Again, Ving Rhames is in the movie for like five minutes and the five minutes he's in, he's literally just wearing a military uniform and talking into a walkie talkie, whatever. So then that gets us to the second remake Day of the Dead colon Bloodline from 2018. Also, again, pretty fucking straightforward, awful direct-to-video. This was directed by Hector Hernandez Vicens. This one, you can fucking tell. They got the rights to this somehow or another, shot the entire thing in Spain as America. Basically, the entire cast is Spanish actors who speak English, and then they're all just being dubbed after the fact. So you either have people who are wholesale being dubbed, or you have people who speak enough English, but it's still line deliveries like, hey, you should look out for her. She's really got a thing for you, sir. Oh, she's coming. You better watch out for that zombie. He's going to come and get you. We just did a Fulci that all that movie yeah. was. And now you fast forward to a 2018 movie and they're still fucking doing that. Yeah, every fucking character, their line deliveries are like fucking Tommy Wiseau in the room. Everybody's just like, oh, hi, doggy. <laughs> Don't touch me, motherfucker. <laughs> Don't touch me, zombie. This one also has a bub, but the bub is a fucking creeper who attempted to rape the main character. 
he becomes a zombie. What? Yeah. Again, his obsession with her is what's driving him. And so he like finds a piece of her clothing and literally like hound dog sniffs her out and like tracks her down and is just totally like, you're going to be mine. Like, I'm going to have you. That's the whole fucking weird thing with this one. Lots of fucking awful digital blood. All the characters are fucking bland and boring. The only thing I will say positive is I think the actual zombie makeup in this one is actually pretty good. But everything else about this movie was fucking dog shit awful. It's one of those. I remember watching it. And again, something we've talked about before because I lived in Europe. I remember watching it. And I was like, it's a shit's film. This is Europe. Yeah. This is not the states at all and then yeah then starting to hear everybody i'm like fuck yeah this is europe and yeah it's annoying yeah and it's supposed to be somewhere <laughs> in america you know just it ohio <laughs> yeah well and i read this was like two of the producers behind the texas chainsaw 3d which was one of the many like trying to reboot the franchise that's the one with alexandra daddario where again they're shooting in shreveport louisiana as texas yeah yeah and also yeah. asked as a yeah. film <laughs> <laughs> lastly we have the the sci-fi channel TV series, which just came out this past year. It is actually described as a horror comedy, um, which I would believe because the main showrunner director guy is Steven Kostansky, who did The Void and The Editor and our favorite Psycho Goreman. So I'm very interested to watch it i did not have fucking 10 to 12 hours of time to watch this entire first season yeah and like it's 10 episodes i didn't really find much of how it was received also too like i mean sci-fi has the chucky series and the chucky series is really good lauded by everybody it's it's really good good. it's interesting that sci-fi is trying to make these series based off of like classic horror properties and they really hit a home run with chucky so i would be curious to see like is this tv series actually pretty good I'm glad they took it in the direction of like a comedy horror. Yeah. Once it is available to stream on something that I already subscribe to like i will probably check it out and i don't know if you're gonna get to this aaron i don't know if either of you have heard about this the thing that was most interesting to me that i looked up was they have announced there is going to be a night of the living dead 2 yes and it's going to be like an unofficial sequel and it's going to be done by uh marcus slabin he worked on one of the amazing spider-men i think he's behind the dark offerings but the thing that's got me excited is it reunites the three characters from day of the dead the three survivors the three survivors, Lori, Cardell, Terry Alexander, and Jariath Conroy. Now, they're all, all those actors are all still alive and they put out like a still image teaser of like the three of them holding weapons older now and the premise behind it is it's on a remote island where a group of survivors have populated and now the dead have shown up and start appearing on this island. Sure as hell sounds like a kind of a sequel to Day of yeah. the Dead. The three of them made it to the island, were living their days out, and now they have to deal zombies again so it will be interesting to see like what comes of this movie marcus slabin also is writing it apparently but yeah he mostly i think just worked in art for a bunch of movies and then he directed the dark offerings from 2021 is like the thing that i keep seeing him pop up for so yeah which wink wink we might be uh talking to somebody involved in that very soon so yeah cool well uh that said let's go ahead and wrap up which 
We got any final thoughts about Day of the Dead before we wrap up? I would like to give a special shout out to the alligator. <laughs> the alligator yes. that was in the town when uh, <laughs> the horde came out. And um, hoping he's doing all right. And uh, yeah. I mean, the zombies The zombies seem like they didn't give a shit yeah. about him. So No, and he didn't give a shit about them either. Nope, not at all. He's thriving, living his best life. Or Herb's best yeah. life, we don't know. Hell yeah. <laughs> I think that's a good wrap-up for this movie. This day That is a blast. This might have been my favorite of the three. Hell yeah. All right, you want to take us out, bud? Uh, and with that, we are Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, the coward, Derek, and my movie Monster Boy co-host, Aaron, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres. And we talk about how scary they are for horror newbies like myself and how good they are for movie junkies like you two guys. You can find us at pretty much any podcatcher at this time. Please rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts, pod chaser good pods those are like where we uh have most of our reviews we're charting uh which is incredible thank you once again shout outs to your little brother jesse mansfield aka party gator also on big clown also on opossums for the bumps at the beginning and ends of each episode speaking of music you can check out our spotify music playlist that has all kinds of spooky tunes that are inspired and borrowed from horror movies and horror as a genre in general we usually add some stuff here and there there's like over 170 songs on there so yeah that's always at the top of our twitter and facebook and speaking of socials you can find us at twitter and facebook at watch if you dare please follow along with us there too and that's all i got what have you got aaron choke on them sally choke on them <laughs>